So if you're just joining us, if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, um, we started a new series. It's called We Make the Road by Walking. It's a book by Brian McLaren. Um, several of you have already requested this, downloaded it, or purchased it from us. Um, I do have more available um, if you want to get one uh, after the service. They're just $11. Um, but we'll be going through this book for the rest of 2018 and then the beginning of 2019, if uh, you're here and I'm here, um, we'll be doing that. Uh, we're, we jumped into cha- uh, chapter 27 of the book. The book follows the, the year, the Christian calendar, um, and you kind of base it off of Easter, which is in a couple of weeks. And so it had us starting in chapter 27 about four weeks ago. And so that's where we're at. Um, and so Brian McLaren, if you don't know, he's a, a, an author, a blogger, a former pastor, um, he's been around in the Christian movement a, a while now. His words and ideas have helped shape me, uh, who I am and what I uh, believe about God. Um, not everything, but a, a lot of things. And so um, I'm excited about sharing him with you. Uh, Matt shared last two weeks. I kicked us off um, about four weeks ago. Um, we're in the third part of the book. The book's called, uh, this part of the book is called Alive in the Global Uprising. This is what the book says. This is joining the adventure of Jesus is a starting line, not a finish line. It leads us into a lifetime of learning and action. It challenges us to stand up against the way things have been and the way things are. To help create new possibilities for the way things can and should be. It enlists us as contemplative activists in an ongoing uprising of peace, freedom, justice, and compassion. So the first uh, uh, five chapters that we've um, been dealing with uh, bring us back to Matthew's gospel. And so if you've been a part of the Grove, you know we're walking through uh, Matthew's story. Um, I put Matthew and gospel together. Did you see that? Uh, Matthew's uh, gospel, the story he tells about God the last couple years. And so here we are again in in the beginning of Matthew. This is where Jesus is gathered on the side of a mountain. He has just called a handful of people to follow him and he draws them in and begins to describe to them what it looks like for those who want to follow Jesus, what what life should look like. Church tradition calls this the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't call it a sermon. He was just talking to some of his friends, his disciples. And with what we know of the landscape where this was taking place compared to our great smoky mountains, the message Jesus gives is more uh, appropriately called, and I, you heard me say this and Matt refreshed you, but called the Sermon on the Hill or the Sermon on a Slight Incline, right? Correctly. So, so to refresh you real quick, and we won't do this every week, but just to jump, uh, start this. Um, the first week we introduced this idea of a new identity, that no longer do we find our identity in who um, and what people say about us or what things we have or the things that we do, but instead we find our identity in the life Jesus calls us to seek. McLaren says that, that that identity will give us a very important role in the world. As creative nonconformists, we will be difference makers, aliveness activists, catalysts for change. Like salt that brings out the best flavors in food, we will bring the best out in our community and society. Like light that penetrates and eradicates darkness, we will radiate health, goodness, and well-being to warm and enlighten those around us. From there, we offered this, this new path, this third way of living. Jesus here on the hillside says, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, well, this is how you live. You've heard it said, do not 
this, but I say to you. And so Jesus challenges the way that we treat one another, the way we interact with one another, wrapping it around this foreign concept of loving your enemies. Then last week, this new identity, this new life, this new path of aliveness begins behind closed doors, he said. That our secret life, this one we live with when no one is looking, the habits and the practices often referred to as spiritual disciplines and giving and praying and fasting. But we don't practice these in front of others. Instead, Jesus teaches us that if we make our lives a show staged for others to avoid their criticism or gain their praise, we won't experience the reward of true aliveness. It's only in secret, in the presence of God alone, that we begin the journey to aliveness. And that brings us to today's text. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It'll be on the screen behind me, but Matthew chapter 6 is where we're at. Starting in verse 19, it says this, and I'm reading out of the the voice translation. So some people store up treasures in their homes here on earth. This is a short-sighted practice. Don't undertake it. Moths and rusts will eat up any treasure that you store there. Thieves may break into your homes and steal your precious trinkets. Instead, put up your treasures in heaven where moths do not attack, where rust does not corrode, and where thieves are barred at the door. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. You draw light into your body through your eyes, and light shines out to the world through your eyes. So if your eye is well and shows you what is true, then your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is clouded or evil, then your body will be filled with evil and dark clouds. And the darkness that takes over the body of a child of God who has gone astray, that is the deepest, darkest darkness there is. Let me, I'm gonna, let me continue that. Verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. If you try, you will wind up loving the first master and hating the second, or vice versa. People try to serve God, both God and money, but you can't. You must choose one or the other. Here is the bottom line. Do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. Don't worry about how you clothe your body. Living is about more than merely eating, and the body is more than dressing up. Look at the birds in the sky. They do not store food for the winter. They don't plant gardens. They do not sow or reap, and yet they are always fed because your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are even more precious to him than a beautiful bird. If he looks after them, of course he will look after you. Worrying does not do any good. Who here can claim to add even an hour to his life by worrying? Verse 28, nor should you worry about clothes. Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They do not work or weave or sew, and yet their garments are stunning. Even King Solomon, dressed in his most regal garb, was not as lovely as these lilies. And think about grassy fields. The grassiness, are, are, the grasses are here and now. And they will be dead by winter. And yet God adorns them so radiantly. How much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. You have no trust. So do not consume yourself with questions. What will I eat or what will I drink or what will we wear? Outsiders make themselves frantic over such questions. They don't realize that your heavenly father knows exactly what you need. Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you 
So do not worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Living faithfully is a large enough task for today. How many of you would describe yourself as a worrier? How many of you are worried to raise your hand because people might judge you, right? I'm going to get to judging in a minute. Let's let's start with worrying. Check out this. The average person spends an hour and 50 minutes each day worrying. 13 hours a week. Five years of their life worrying. So what stresses you out? What things worry you? What things do you get anxious about? I'm asking you. Here's here's what we're going to do. There are note cards at your table. You're going to take a second, grab a note card. And I want you to write on that note card something you wish you were no longer worried about or anxious about. Put in that note card and then fold it and keep it and hold on to it. Don't lose it. Take a second. There's note cards in front of you. Everyone, God's watching. Do it. You're worried about spelling, I know. Take it, grab your card, write something on it. Just take a minute to do that real quick. All right, just one thing, don't be greedy. Just one thing. Here we go. Grab it, fold it up in your hand, hold on to it. Don't lose it. You're going to do something with it later. Generation X and the Millennials is nicknamed Generation Stress, right? And it says 83% of are, are doing nothing about it. Both generations report almost twice the level of stress that's considered safe from serious health risk. 52% of millennials and 45% of Gen Xers say that stress has continued to increase over the last five years. Over 40% of both generations say that they're having problems with anxiety, anger, irritability, and depression. And over 70% of millennials say that they are not getting enough sleep. This not only holds serious ramifications of our, for our younger generation, it also bodes poorly for companies in need of breakthrough innovators to maintain competitive edge because stress blocks the brain's function that creates, creates, uh, generates creativity. So what do you think the number one stressor for, from baby boomers to millennials? That includes almost everyone here. Money. Very, yes, money. Which makes sense that Jesus would start and deal with these internal struggles that humanity has. The first one he would mention would be money. Like, God almost knew what would cause us anxiety, right? He says, you cannot serve God in money. You will either love one and hate the other, or to be devoted to one and despise the other. I'm going to read you some stats on, uh, on millennials. These are the top ten stresses for millennials. Number one, finances. Of course, that's all of us. Two is tired and lack of sleep stresses them out. Health, workload, Future of the country, on the rise, right? Student loans, parents' health, a recent argument with their partner, their boss, their supervisor, and lack of progress in a relationship, their top 10 stresses. These are how they respond to those. They become impatient with others. They require naps and and they sleep more. They try to ignore it. They cry, withdraw from friends, uh, maybe eating a favorite snack or food. They withdraw from family. They talk to a friend. They exercise, and there's a change in their sexual desire or response. And these are the top 10 things that are keeping them up at night. One is stress and worry. Number two is it's too hot. <laughs> Uncomfortable mattresses, mobile devices or TV, and then work-related things. 
uh, that they have to do. Then top 10 uh, or top stressful events for everyone. These are millennials. These are baby boomers, Generation X, all of us here. These are the top uh, stressful events that we go through. The death of a spouse or child is number one. Divorce, marital separation, imprisonment, death of a close family member, personal injury or illness, marriage, dismissal from work, marital reconciliation, retirement. Those are the top 10. And then they also included selling a home, a high stakes testing like an ACT or some other test that you might take, talking to someone you're interested in is a stressful event, starting a new job, being a victim of a crime, starting a business, and then the election years are all top stressful events. And quickly, let me, let me tell you uh, the difference between fear and, and worry, fear and anxiety, fear and stress. Let me tell you the difference here in a little quick story. Let's say you're walking through the woods. It's pleasant, right? It's invigorating. It's the sun is shining through, the, the leaves are there, and suddenly a rattlesnake appears in front of you, right? You experience something in that moment, don't you? You freeze, your, your heart rate shoots up, and you begin to sweat. A quick, automatic sequence of physical reaction. The response in that moment is fear. A week later, you're taking the same walk again. Sunshine, pleasure, but there's no rattlesnake there. But still you are worried that you will encounter one. And so the experience of walking through the woods is filled with worry. You are anxious. Scientists generally define fear as a negative emotional state triggered by the presence of a stimulus, like, a, like the snake, that has the potential to cause harm. Anxiety is the negative emotional state in which the threat is not present, but anticipated. That human anxiety is greatly amplified by our ability to imagine the future and our place in it. And the simple distinction between anxiety and fear is an important one in the task of defining and treating anxiety disorders, which affect millions of people. I looked up some more stats on anxiety disorders. Generalized anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million people in the U.S. That's 3% of the U.S. population. Only 43% of those people are actually getting help for that. Panic disorders, 6 million, 2.7% of the population in the U.S. Social anxiety disorder, 15 million people, 6.8% of the population. They say it begins at the age of 13 and says 36% of them take about 10 years to even seek help for that. Phobias affect 19 million people, 8.7%. An average starts at seven years old. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, 2.2 million. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, 7.7 million people, 3.5% of the population. Rape is the number one trigger. 45% of women and 65% of men who have been raped will end up with PTSD. Childhood sexual abuse is a lifetime likelihood of PTSD. Very common to have both an anxiety disorder and some of these uh, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, headaches, irritability, um, sleep disorder, substance abuse, adult ADHD, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and stress are all common to have with both anxiety disorders. 
It says 25% of kids 13 to 18 have anxiety disorders. And depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. 75% of mental disorders go untreated in developing countries with 1 million people taking their lives every year. Jesus is addressing these internal struggles that we all have. Some of us daily. And he says the antidote to worry and the antidote to anxiety is to seek the kingdom of God. Jesus names some of the things that we tend to be anxious about. He says that we obsess about our bodies, that we're too fat or we're too thin or we're too tall or too short or too young or too old or how's my hair? We obsess about our food and our drink and our clothing. Are we eating at the best restaurants? Are we drinking the right craft beer? Are we wearing the latest trends? Our anxieties show up in how little we trust God. That God must either be incompetent or uncaring that we might end up miserable or starving or naked or dead. And not only are many of our, our anxieties ridiculous and counterproductive, he says, Jesus says that they are unnecessary. He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. See how alive and free they are. God knows what they need. God cares for them. God sustains them through the natural order of things. And God does the same for us. If you're worried about all these things, he says, then your priorities must be off. We must first seek the kingdom of God. But reality is, if you struggle with anxiety, you, you may need to seek help. You may have to talk to someone about it. But there are habits and there are practices that you can implement to start getting healthy. But it's real. It's debilitating. It can ruin relationships and it can ultimately, it can ultimately kill. McLaren says, he says this, anxiety doesn't stop its dirty work at the individual level. It makes whole communities tense and toxic. Anxiety-driven systems produce a pecking order as anxious people compete and use each other in the pursuit of more stuff to stave off their anxiety. Soon, participants in such a system feel that they can't trust anybody because everyone's out for himself or herself, driven by fear. Eventually, anxiety-driven people find a vulnerable person or group to vent their anxiety upon. The result? Bullying, scapegoating, oppression, injustice, and still, they will still be anxious. Before long, they will be making threats and launching wars so they can protect their internal anxiety on an external enemy. No doubt many of Jesus' original hearers would have thought, he's describing the Romans. But to some degree, the diagnosis applies to us all. The antidote to be, to be people that live out the kingdom is the antidote. To seek God's kingdom, to seek his justice. He makes this promise that everything you truly need will be given. And when we learn from the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, to live by faith in God's promises, then we will serve one another. We'll love one another. We'll share with one another. We watch out for each other instead of competing with each other. We bless rather than oppress. We, we work for the common, the common good. And then Jesus moves right from there, this internal struggle that we have, uh, that is to judge other people. Chapter 7, verse 1. If you judge other people then you will find that too, 
that you too are being judged. Indeed, you will be judged by the very standards to which you hold other people. Why is it that you see the dust in your brother's or sister's eye, but you can't see what is going on in your own eye? Don't ignore the wooden plank in your eye while you criticize the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyelashes. That type of criticism and judgment is a sham. Remove the plank from your own eye, and then perhaps you will be able to see clearly how to help your brother flush out his sawdust. McLaren says that anxious people are judgmental people. Worried that someone is judging them, then we constantly judge others, which of course intensifies the environment of judging for everyone. Just as anxiety quickly becomes contagious and creates an anxiety-driven system, judgment easily created accusatory systems in which no one can rest and no one can be himself or herself and no one can feel free. You see, when we worry about ourselves, when we worry about what others think of us, then we return that judgment on others. And then that affects how we treat one another. That how you think of others reflects how you think of yourself. And how you treat others directly reflects how you treat yourself. And so the antidote to judging, Jesus says, is self-examination or self-reflection. And when you take the time to self-examine and self-reflect, you can begin to gain empathy for others. You begin to begin to understand others. And when you learn how to help yourself, then you can learn how to help others. And now, I do want to note this this is not the same as discerning and trust. Judgment is not the same because this in verse 6 says this. It says, don't give precious things to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. If you do, the pigs will trample the pearls with their little pig's feet. And then they will turn back and attack you. So there's a difference between using wisdom when dealing with people than just assuming people are less than or, or implying that they're less worthy. Jesus wasn't talking about discernment here. But ultimately, ultimately Jesus is leading us, leading us into this third way, this new way of living. You see, Jesus wants to lead us out of a place of anxiety, out of a place of judgment of others, into something deeper. He says, seek my kingdom and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you will receive. And then he addresses what is probably the biggest obstacle to grasping this. For the crowd that was gathered there in Matthew's gospel and for many of us in this room today. We do not realize just how deeply we are loved by God. Verse 9. Think of it this way. Well, let's Google verse 7. Just ask and it will be given to you. Seek after it and you will find. Continue to knock and the door will be open for you. All who ask, receive. Those who seek, find what they seek. And he who knocks will have the door open. Think of it this way. If your son asked you for bread, would you give him a stone? Of course not. You would give him a loaf of bread. If your son asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? No, to be sure you would give him a fish, the best fish you could find. So if you who are sinful know how to give your children good gifts, how much more does a father in heaven who is perfect know how to give great gifts to his children? This is what our scriptures come to. This is what they teach in everything, in every circumstance. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It all comes down to this. All of scripture teaches this, that there is nothing you could do for God to love you less. 
And there is nothing that you could do to make God love you more. Richard Rohr says this, talking about Francis of Assisi. He says that they understood that the entire circle of life had a great lover at the center. For the Franciscan school before God is the divine logos, the rational pattern. God is infinite and absolute friendship, which is the trinity. That is eternal outpouring, which is love. Love is the very nature of being itself. See, God is not a being who occasionally decides to love, but God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. As Paul says to the intellectual people of Athens, God is being itself. And by reason of the Trinity, being is described as love. For us, the Trinity must be the absolute beginning point and ending point too. Outpouring love is the inherent shape of the universe. And only when we love do we fully and truthfully exist in this universe and move towards our full purpose. As the book of Revelation says that Christ who came forth from the Trinity is both the Alpha and Omega, the point of all history. This is not a religious statement as much as a metaphysical and cosmic statement, which gives the whole universe meaning and direction and goal. God's purposes are social, cosmic, and universal, and not just for a small group of so-called insiders. If hope is not a big hope, I do not think small hope is very possible. And get this, love is the very meaning of creation. Many of the fathers and mothers of the church, along with many of the saints and mystics throughout history, said that God created because, frankly, God needed something to love and something that could love God freely in return. If human parents, with all their faults, know how to give good gifts to their kids, could we trust that the living God could be generous and compassionate to all those who call out for help? If a parent is capable of those things, how much more is the God of the universe who is love, who created us to love? So keep seeking, it says. Keep asking. Keep knocking. God loves you and he wants to give you the kingdom. I was talking to Mason and Meg the other day. Jody and I took them a meal. Um, If you'd like to do that, you can sign up for Take Them a Meal. That's part of our mission here. If you see that on the papers in front of you, we, we offer meals to people that are going through things or sicknesses, illnesses, or new kids. Uh, Megan Mason just had a beautiful baby and got to hold the baby and caught the fever. No? Okay. We'll talk later. Um, he's, uh, Mason, was, I was talking to him. He's like, Jeff, I goes, I didn't think it would happen so fast. You see, I knew I would love her. You know, she's going to be my kid. I knew that. But I didn't know how instantaneous I would fall in love with her. Roar goes on to say, I, I imagine if you have children, you've experienced this. When you welcome your child into this world, your fondest desire, perhaps at an unconscious level, was just to love this little one in every possible way. Hidden behind that is this deep desire that someday my child will love me back in the same way that I loved him or her. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, the very way you love your children becomes their empowerment to love you back. God is love. God created you. God named you the beloved. God loved you and has empowered you to now go and love others. But to love others, you must become aware of how much God loves you. 
Watch this video. Baptism is a naming. That's ultimately baptism is naming someone a child of God. And um, it's... a child of God. Well, I think we're all children of God. And I think baptism acknowledges that. that. And you don't become a child of God when you cross off a list of things to do. Or even when you are baptized. Being baptized is simply a naming, an acknowledgement of someone's existing belovedness. I mean, when Jesus was baptized, he didn't only begin to be beloved by God when he was baptized. Um, It it was an acknowledgement of his eternal belovedness. He was God, but not everybody else. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, but I think it's true for everyone else. Not everybody's creating God's image. I like that you're playing devil's advocate here. Um, <laughs> but, well, really, I think baptism is, is an acknowledgement of uh, people's belovedness. And when we treat it as that, it's, it's, in the Orthodox tradition, it's part of the baptismal service is a renunciation of Satan and his demons and of evil. And the way I kind of look at that and apply that is... In bapt- baptism is a renunciation of all those competing voices that try and tell you who you are. Uh, the world says, gives you names like screw up, faker, fat, slut, addict. In baptism, you're named beloved. Uh, and then the world, like demons, beckon with rich, powerful, pretty, right. But in baptism, you're told you're beloved and that's enough. Uh, I think everyone wants to be told sort of who they are. And in baptism, we're told you are a a beloved child of God. And we're told to renounce anything that says otherwise. And it's a really, it's it's a defiant thing to do. I, I look at baptism as defiance because the world will always try to name us. And in baptism, we say, no, my name is beloved. <laughs> uh, so whether that happens when you were an infant and you are remembering your baptism as God naming you beloved, or whether it happens as an adult, uh, I think when we look at our baptisms and we think about the significant of our, significance of our baptisms, it's that we are named by God and that that's enough. Good news. It is good news. <laughs>